The 60s original TV series Star Trek describes space as the final frontier. But my guest today says there's another frontier we're only beginning to understand, inner space. His research has led him to understand how so-called mindful meditation and prayer can not only help to manage stress and negative thoughts, but it can actually change the neurological makeup of our brains. Good morning, this is Fordham Conversations, I'm Robin Shannon. Today I'm talking to Dr. Kirk Bingaman. He's associate professor of Fordham University's Graduate School of Religion and Religious Education. He's also the author of the book, The Power of Neuroplasticity for Pastoral and Spiritual Care. Good morning, Kirk. Good morning, Robin. So what did you learn about the brain from writing your book and from your research? That it is another frontier. The cosmos and, and outer space certainly is a frontier to be sure, but what's inside your head and mind is another one. And we've only scratched the surface in terms of brain science. And I can only imagine what will be coming in, in future years in terms of discoveries. And in your book, you talk about how we can take our negative thoughts and actually not only change them, but change how our brain responds. So explain the basis of your book. The book uh, explores, uh, as I put it in the title, the power of, of neuroplasticity. And you're going to have to define that for those of us who don't have a dictionary okay. with us right now. <laughs> well, in, 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 in years past, uh, it was thought that by a certain age, the, the brain is fixed. But that's not true. What we're learning from recent neuroscience is that the brain is built for change across the lifespan. So from birth to death, there is the possibility of neurological change, even for the, the aging brain. I think this is really exciting news, particularly for a day and age that I feel more and more is characterized by higher and higher levels of anxiety. Uh, people in our care, clients, congregants, uh, more and more concerned, anxious, worried uh, about the future. And there was always the assumption that, uh, well, for the next generation, they're going to have a better future th than I did. Uh, my child will, will have it better. And, and, and now, in, in a way, all bets are off. Uh, it, it's uh, a lot of un uncertainty about future for, for the nation, the, the world, for me, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a good thing through your book that we're learning that, okay, I have some hope now. My mind didn't shut off when I was like 25 or 30 that there is an opportunity for change if I just take the initiative and do it. Yes, if you're an anxious person, and who isn't? I now go on the assumption that uh, everyone's feeling anxious these days. It's not a matter of if, but to what degree. And what do we do with that? Practitioners, uh, you know, first and foremost, what do we do with our own anxiety and uh, in so doing, uh, help those in our care with, with theirs. Kirk, through your book, did you look at any specific types of anxiety? So what are some of the most common fears or anxious thoughts that the average person has? I certainly think in relation to the future, our children, our grandchildren, uh, will they inherit a better world? That's always been the American dream. And now we're not as sure. And they're really big issues on the front burner these days, the, the economy, uh, national economy, a global economy, climate change, right? You know, well, what the heck's going on? 
I think that these are concerns that everyone has, and if we put it in uh, the language of spirituality, how to stay centered and grounded even when we notice our anxious thoughts and feelings. Now, part of what you talk about is mindful meditation. First of all, is this different than the meditation that we're more familiar with in the media? You can look at it right from the, the standpoint of, of Eastern uh, thinking and practice would be mindfulness, breathing, meditation. From a Christian standpoint, it, it would be uh, contemplative prayer, contemplative uh, spiritual practice that one does on a regular basis just to start the day. And the thing about that, after a while, if the, the meditational contemplative practice becomes a regular thing, that it becomes a way of life. So what I did in my meditation this morning, I take with me into the day. If I'm late for a meeting and I'm stuck at a red light, I can come back to that. My sacred word, my mantra to recenter. So to sort of define it, Kirk, it's like my conversation with myself to keep me calm and focused and not necessarily responding to some of the outward stresses, not being reactionary, but more so being at a place where I'm not going to let these outside forces move me to do something that I might not necessarily want to do. I'm more focused on what I need to do. Sure. And sometimes they will. I think that the important thing here is that we don't want this to come across as something unrealistic, that, you know, I'm going to get it right every time. I'm going to stay calm and centered uh, every time because, uh, you know, I've, I've been uh, doing a contemplative uh, meditational practice for a while now, and, and I think it's helping. And even those near and dear to me uh, agree that, you know, it's helping, but there are moments when, we just get uh, uh, swept up <laughs> in, in, you know, the the anxiety of the moment, and and sometimes uh, we, we we don't stay calm, and 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 that's okay. It's not thinking we failed. Uh, oh my goodness, you know, who am I kidding? I'm never going to be able to meditate. No, it's just coming back to it, even when whenever we are off center. And I want to get into the actual meditation and what suggestions you might have, but I want to go a little more into the mind and how the brain actually changes its neurological makeup. How does that happen through this mindful meditation and prayer? Just the, the, the terminology that I've seen neuroscientists uh, use is uh, using the mind, our thoughts, feelings, perceptions to change uh, the, the physical brain. So how uh, does that happen, Kirk? Well, uh, it, it's becoming more and more mindful of, of what's going on in my mind, uh, my, my anxious mental contents. It's not, uh, you know, trying to keep the lid on them. It, it's not that. It's not fighting with myself. Oh, my goodness, the, the, there's a, an anxious thought or, or feeling. I can't have that. Well, yes, I can. Uh, it, it's, it's what I do with it whenever I notice or, or, or am mindful that, up oh, there, there it is again. You triggered something in me, uh, and now I'm feeling anxious. Now, now, what do I do with it? There is research to suggest that an anxious thought or feeling or, or, or other kinds of thoughts and feelings have a 90-second biochemical life that 
anxious thought or feeling dissipates in my bloodstream in 90 seconds. As long as I don't latch on to it and feed it, struggle with it, and fight with it, because then that fires up parts of the brain that we call the warning center, the stress center, to use a brain term, the amygdala. And that's exactly what we don't want to do. So uh, bottom line, uh, the the anxious thoughts and feelings can come and go. I've heard uh, contemplative practitioners talk. Imagine them as clouds in the sky. Uh, So there it is, and like clouds in the sky. So our negative thoughts are clouds in the sky. As clouds in the sky, they don't stay there forever, or or waves ebbing and flowing on, on the beach. They come and go, and let them come and go. We don't have to do anything other than be mindful that, yeah, that's an anxious thought or feeling that I have in this moment. I don't have to indulge it, feed it, deny it, or try and repress it because that becomes ultimately counterproductive. So what you're saying is if I have a negative thought, instead of one automatically reacting to it and holding on to that negative thought, if I can find a way to release it within 90 seconds, that will physically change my brain and my the chemistry in my body. Is that correct? It has uh, an impact on the functioning of the brain, and over time it, it has a, an impact on the anatomical structure. This is not easy overnight solution. This is something that we have to embrace for a lifetime. So I am finding a way to let whatever comes to mind come and go in its due process. This is Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. I'm Robin Shannon talking with Fordham University's Dr. Kirk Bingaman. We're discussing how to change negative thoughts by actually changing how the brain functions. So now I want to get into specifics on how the amygdala and the brain actually function so I can have a better understanding of how to change that. Well, it's a re-sculpting, what we like to say, uh, the neural pathways. If I've been uh, a highly anxious person for uh, a lot of years in in my life, it's going to take a little time. In, you know, highly anxious uh, moments, what happens is that the amygdala in a split second, a nanosecond, orders a takeover of higher order consciousness. In that split second, it hijacks our higher order consciousness. And as we find a way to be more and more mindful of those internal processes, we can come to regulate them. Not perfectly, but more and more uh, finding a way to let higher order consciousness be in the mix as well. So, Kirk, is there a particular region in our brain that holds negativity? The amygdala. You could call it the stress region, the warning center of the brain that predisposes us to be on the lookout for negativity, to be one step ahead. It's kept our ancestors alive. The problem today is we don't need as much as that, of that negativity that we did uh, heretofore. So basically, are you saying that we had, our ancestors needed that negativity slash warning sign when there was danger, but because we're not running from the things we were running from in the past, because we have different lifestyles and different ways of living now with all the modern conveniences, that we don't need that warning signal 
but still, it's still there. Even today, those who are in the military, in harm's way, they need that part of the brain in high gear. However, in, quote, normal, ordinary, everyday life, if I come home at day's end and the amygdala is still firing and you look at me a certain way or say something a certain way, then it starts uh, sounding the, the warning bell, uh-oh, why did she look like that? Is she, uh, is she fru- mad with me? Is mad, she, frustrated know, with me? Right. Uh, doesn't she love me anymore? Or why did my boss uh, look at me like that? Am I going to get fired? Uh, or uh, something along those lines. Uh, so our perspective is actually changed because of this warning system. Yeah. Can we call it something like negativity of the mind? What's a good uh, well, description uh, ne- for neuroscientists it? call it a negativity bias. Okay, so so the uh, negativity resonates more powerfully in the brain than positivity. Why? That's just where it is at the moment. So uh, we respond easier to things that are negative than we do positive. Well, you can do something nice for me, positive. I'll record that. But it doesn't have the same intensity as if you said something uh, negative to me or or we had a negative interaction that the brain remembers that uh, more vividly than positive actions, affirmations. And, And that's why there are these studies that indicate that to keep the brain in balance, there has to be a three to one positivity to negativity ratio. If we have a negative interaction, then we need to balance that with three positive affirmations if it's uh, relational. If it's in my own mind, I had a really judgmental, uh, critical uh, thought about you, then I need to balance that in my own mind with, you know, there, there are many things that you do that I'm truly grateful for and I appreciate And that has to uh, be at least a a three-to-one ratio. Uh, And then, of course, in intimate relationships, couples, spouses, uh, it has to be five-to-one. So you need more. Uh, (laughs) uh, You know, to to keep— So you're saving marriages right now, Kurt. (laughs) Well, uh, keep the brain in balance and and keep uh, relationships in balance. So you actually suggest we had one negative encounter— but I don't want to let this friendship go or, you know, in this particular case, this friendship go. So now I, it's my responsibility to then counter that one negative experience with at least three others that I'm consciously saying, okay, you know, Kirk came in and he just really reamed me. He just really said something that hurt my feelings. But I know he's a kind person and I know he's a smart person. I know he's he, he probably didn't mean it like that. So I'm going to have to tell myself that to counter that negative thought that's really trying to embed itself into my mind. That's you regulating the contents of your mind. That's the process of neuroplasticity. Now, Kurt, you said that the brain is hardwired for, you know, this anxious awareness, this warning. So why is it challenging for some people to enjoy, quote, those little moments where it seems like other people more easily can enjoy those little moments without as much stress? Part of it is obviously uh, the genes that you inherited, I inherited. That's certainly part of it. You know, some people have more anxious genetic uh, makeup. It could be early formative years. Whatever was going on at that time has reinforced the negativity bias that I come into this world with already. There are certainly uh, some people 
uh, seemingly more anxious than others. The good news is that uh, wherever you are on the spectrum, you can still be starting today, tomorrow, with a contemplative meditational practice that if you do it on a regular enough basis, that over time it's going to change your brain structurally and in terms of its functioning. So by using this mindful meditation and prayer, even if someone is stressful a lot or stressful a little, you can still change the neurons in your brain by this mindful meditation and this prayer. Absolutely. And to say it another way, it's about the practice. If you look at it in terms of cognitive therapy, cognitive therapists like to give homework. We could call it practice. If you're coming to see me for pastoral counseling, I might say and would say, Robin, what if you do 10 minutes of contemplative meditational practice a day? As a start, maybe you'd work up to 15, 20, because it's really important what happens between sessions. I think some people assume that, well, I come in for an hour of counseling, but it's really what happens between uh, those counseling like fix me sessions. In that one hour. It's really important what happens uh, you know, during the week. Now, Kurt, does this idea work for everyone? What about someone who might have some kind of mental challenge or anxiety disorder? Yes. Uh, you know, if it's uh, in clinical uh, terms, if someone has GAD, uh, generalized anxiety disorder, absolutely. It can be something that they begin uh, to put into practice. They could need something uh, additional regular counseling or psychotherapy, and, and in some cases, uh, depending on the level, uh, medication, and that could be a combinational treatment plan. So it, it varies from uh, person to person. Kurt, as you said, um, this particular idea was to help religious and spiritual leaders use neuroscience you know, to help others. Can it be used by any leadership? Absolutely. You know, mindfulness is uh, a hot topic uh, right now, quote unquote. And it's being applied in religious, uh, spiritual communities, but, you know, it's also being applied more and more in, quote, secular uh, psychotherapeutic practice, in business, corporate world, across the board. I guess you, you could even do it here. Uh, if you do uh, a staff retreat at WFUV, uh, it helps and can also be somewhat self-directed. So I can be doing it each and every morning, or uh, and, and I, I wish I, I could say full disclosure, yes, Robin, I do it every single morning. I, I can't say You're that. You're so perfect. But, <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I try uh, four days, five days a week to be doing, and for me, a contemplative centering prayer that I do uh, to start the day. And, and it can be a self-directed. It, it can also be done, I, I think, and, and it's good to do uh, in group. Uh, so it, it's something I do for myself on a personal basis uh, and relationally in, in a faith community. If I can ask personally, what kind of changes have you seen from pre-meditation to now for yourself personally? Well, just the meditational practice. And for me, again, I do the centering prayer. So for 20 minutes, you find a comfortable place, you relax, and you find a sacred word or mantra, and that's your anchor. 
for those 20 minutes. And uh, that's what you say over and over again, or how does that work? Yeah, and for me, like this morning, for example, I like to do in Hebrew, there's a word, uh, ruah, which has a couple different translations. One is breath, another is spirit, another is wind, uh, used interchangeably. So I like to do contemplative uh, meditation in rhythm to my breath. With Ruah in mind, I breathe in saying breath and breathe out saying spirit. It's a wonderful discipline for me because truth is I'm not always mindful of my breath. I'm not always mindful of the spirit. And the more I do that, the more I'm mindful and grateful for both of those gifts. Now, in in the 20 minutes, it doesn't take long for the mind to start firing. The mental chatter, the, the, the amygdala. What do I need to do uh, today? Kicks in. What's in uh, my list of things oh, to do? Oh, my goodness. You know, what's Robin going to ask me? Am I going to be ready for that interview? And what do I do? It's really important that I don't judge myself. I just can't meditate. I'm a failure at this. No, just come back to the word. Notice those anxious thoughts. Let them come and go like clouds in the sky and come back to, you know, the, the breath spirit, breath, spirit, or or whatever it is, peace. It could be whatever has a deep resonance uh, for you. So it's Uh, to focus on that mantra so that you're not allowing yourself to get not only distracted by what could be a negative thought or a negative mindset, but so that you're not focused on the emotion behind and the stress behind whatever that negative thought might be. So yes, I might say, oh, I'm meditating. And I'm saying, let's say peace, you know, I'm saying peace, but it's getting late. And what am I going to make my butt? It's okay that you thought that, but let's go back to peace as opposed to like, oh, I'm so silly. Why couldn't I? Why can't I focus? But yeah, you you, you just come back to peace. It's not denying or or pretending those thoughts aren't there. Oh, my goodness. I didn't get, you know, dinner for tonight. Peace. You know, just 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 not judging them. Yeah, because when we do that, that train's leaving the station, so to speak. What happens to the brain when we do that, And we get on that uh, rather than coming back to the the more peaceful uh, train of of our uh, centering practice. When we do that, what happens to the brain? It feeds those limbic structures. Uh, You know, they're they're starting to fire. Uh Uh-oh, are you ready for that meeting? Uh Uh-oh, are you ready for class tonight? And, you know, God— And that's what we're trying to change. We're trying to change that, uh, that where it fires. And God bless it. It's trying to keep us alert. Don't forget, because, my goodness, if you're not ready for class, that won't be good. It won't be good. And I like to be prepared and teach a good class. But this is my meditation time. I'll deal with that in 20 minutes. This is my centering time. And a way to stay focused in, in the present as opposed to what we were talking about earlier, focusing on the future and the anxiety and the stress that might come with the what if down the road. Absolutely. I think human beings, we spend so much time regretting well, what we did or, or didn't do in the past. And look, uh, we can all learn from past mistakes, but you're going to make them, I'm going to make them. So much of our, our thought, focus, energy is invested in in replaying the past or anticipating what might be coming in the future. And, and I, you know, and we miss the present. Yeah, and, and I'm I'm so mindful of uh, Jesus's teaching: uh, "Do not be anxious about tomorrow." 
sometimes easier said than done. And he adds, uh, you know, just come back to today because truth is today has enough to deal with the wisdom of uh, a day at a time, uh, truly. Kurt, now you said you've received pushback when you've suggested making contemplative prayer and meditation a regular part of a person's life. Why do you think you received the pushback? Not so much pushback, you know, maybe a casual interest, sometimes not grasping the, the importance of this. And, you know, historically in religious faith communities, uh, that there's been a lot of emphasis on uh, what you believe, what the church teaches, the doctrine of the church, all important. However, there's not always been commensurate uh, focus on contemplative spiritual practice. Sometimes we think, well, the mystics, the desert fathers and, and mothers, sure, that they, they were doing that deep meditation and contemplative practice. But the paradigm shift for me, and I say this in the book, uh, and I think for pastoral and spiritual caregivers is to elevate contemplative, meditational, spiritual practice to a place of comparable importance with belief, doctrine, teaching. Make it all a part of it. And I, you know, again, we've only scratched the, the surface in terms of, of what we're learning about the brain. Uh, my hunch is that in coming years that we're going to see this all the more. That And we've known this all, all along, that prayer, meditation, uh, contemplative practice, it's really good for us spiritually. But what we're learning now is not only spiritually, but psychophysiologically. It really has a, a, an impact on, on our spirit, our, our psyche, our, our physiology, our vital signs uh, over time, you know, uh, blood pressure, heart rate, etc. Kurt, what does the acronym COAL stand for, and how does that relate to meditative thought? Coal is uh, put forward by uh, Dan Siegel, uh, and he's uh, developed what, what he calls Mindsight, and uh, he offers that as a really simple uh, acronym, as, as you noted, for when we're meditating, and it stands for uh, curiosity, openness, acceptance, and love. Uh, so in your 20 minutes of uh, contemplative meditational practice, you try to apply those things. Uh, curiosity about, you know, I'm, I'm really anxious about this meeting today or this class tonight. And openness. It, it's not pushing it away, and, you know, it's not, it's not indulging it either. Acceptance. Really important. There are studies uh, that indicate the more we can accept what is, at the moment, the calmer, less anxious we're going to be. Now, it, it, that's not synonymous with liking it. There can be uh, circumstances, external circumstances, that, that I'm, I'm not liking at the moment or, uh, you know, thoughts I'm having, uh, perhaps a painful memory. You know, it doesn't feel good. I don't really like that, but that, that's where I am at the moment. That's what acceptance means. And the, the more we can apply this, uh, the, the, there are studies that indicate it correlates with a reduction of limbic activity, stress region, of the brain. So, Kurt, ultimately, what do you see as the goal? 
I think, in short, Robin, that this becomes a, a way of life for us uh, over time. Uh, that this, if uh, the, the acronym that, that you just used, coal, in in our meditational practice, are, are you know, for me, it, it's centering in, in my sacred word or mantra for the 20 minutes uh, of meditational practice uh, I, I do in the morning. And I take that with me in, in, into my day. And over time, it starts becoming a, a way of life that it's not just something I, I do that there's 20 minutes in the morning, but it, it's something I do when I'm feeling anxious or, or frustrated at points during the day and in a meeting, uh, stuck in traffic, you know, late for an appointment. You know, I, I, I can come back to that. Uh, and, so and from a neurological point of view, is there maybe a difference between the way someone whose brain works who meditates as opposed to someone the way their brain works who doesn't meditate? Yeah, that's a really good question. And uh, a researcher at Harvard and Massachusetts General Hospital, Sarah Lazar, has been doing studies on meditation, brain studies, uh, for well over a decade now. And uh, her, her, her bottom line finding is, is that the brain of a meditator is different from the brain of a non-meditator and really important even at rest. Uh, so it's not just, well, the meditator's brain is different when engaged in meditation. No, even at rest uh, throughout the day, it looks different on a brain scan uh, from that of a non-meditator. I'd like to thank my guest, Dr. Kirk Bingaman. His book, The Power of Neuroplasticity for Pastoral and Spiritual Care, is out right now by Lexington Books. I'd also like to thank my producer, Megan Connor. Thank you so much, Kirk. Uh, thank you, Robin. A pleasure. Stay with us. George Bodarkey and Cityscape are next on WFUV. For Fordham Conversations, I'm Robin Shannon. <laughs>